Section 34 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18, Stupor Mundi, Part 1. The monk of St. Albans, in bestowing upon Frederick the title of the Wonder of the World, deems it unnecessary to enlarge upon that title by comment or explanation we may take it that he is but recording the universal opinion of his age. The magnificent and unparalleled figure of the Roman emperor had excited in his generation a sentiment of wonder, and whether men marveled at him with admiration or deprecation, to friend and enemy alike, he was a being whose career and personality evoked surpassing interest and profound surprise. We may conceive easily enough how this sentiment had arisen. The sudden change in his fortunes, which in his youth had elevated him from the position of a powerless king to that of the first monarch of Christendom, had no doubt attracted considerable attention. And from henceforth, by virtue of his high office, he could no longer remain in obscurity. But it was the circumstances of his crusade that first made him the cynosure of all eyes. His abortive embarkation for the Holy Land and the excommunication which had been immediately launched upon him formed a dramatic prelude. His subsequent departure in defiance of the ban of the church and the attack which the enraged pope had made upon his dominions offered to Europe the strange spectacle of an emperor leading a crusade who was himself the object of a crusade. The extraordinary success which he had obtained by peaceful means in spite of the persistent antagonism of the papal party had earned him the admiring gratitude of Christendom, while at the same time his friendly intercourse with the Sultan and his broad-minded attitude toward the infidels had mingled with that admiration an emotion of shocked amazement. He had returned to his European dominions with his dignity enhanced by the acquisition of the crown of Jerusalem, and had wrested from the Pope the revocation of the sentence of excommunication. Men had then gradually become informed of his astonishing mental attainments, had learnt of how he could discourse with Jews, Arabians, Frenchmen, Italians, and Germans in their own tongues, and how he had mastered the learning of Greece and Rome, of how he could meet on terms of equality, if not of superiority, with the greatest scholars of his age in every branch of knowledge. The elegance and magnificence of his court, its oriental splendor, and its cosmopolitan hospitality had been noised abroad. His maintenance of a harem, though it would have passed unnoticed had he been merely the king of Sicily, became a glaring defiance of propriety in one who was the chief monarch of Christendom. Men whispered in horrified undertones that he was even suspected of indulging in carnal pleasures with infidel women. He had ignored the prejudices of his day by planting a colony of Saracens in the very heart of his kingdom and by employing them as his soldiers. He had flouted religious bigotry by allowing Greeks, Jews, and infidels to worship as they pleased. He was even said to have derided the Immaculate Conception, to have placed Christ on a level with Moses and Mohammed, to have become almost a Saracen himself in belief and in manner of life. His system of government had aroused much of the same interest and surprise as would be excited in our own day by the spectacle of a monarch 
trampling down the established forces of democracy and erecting a despotism upon their ruins. In every other country, the royal power was subservient to aristocratic and ecclesiastical privilege. In England, the barons had wrested the great charter from John, were soon to rise successfully against Henry III. In France, the dynasty of Capet had hardly yet begun to assert its supremacy over the forces of feudalism. In the kingdom of Sicily, however, the nobles and ecclesiastics were stripped of every privilege which conflicted with the royal authority, and a perfectly centralized organization had been erected in which all power emanated from the king. Frederick had then entered upon the final stage of that long and bitter struggle with the papacy, which was to endure until his death. This combat between the temporal and the spiritual power, the most vital feature of the history of the Middle Ages, enlisted the passionate interest of the inhabitants of every Christian country, and Frederick, as the object of a peculiarly venomous hatred, as the most redoubtable champion of the temporal cause, had loomed gigantically in the vision of men. His high-handed assertion of the imperial supremacy and the capture of Gregory's council had been but an astonishing incident of the struggle. A more lasting marvel lay in his steadfast maintaining of his independence. Where Henry IV had knelt in penitence at Canossa, where Barbarossa had flung himself before the feet of the Pope at Venice, Frederick had never humiliated himself before the Vicar of Christ. John of England had submitted himself and his realm to Innocent III. His successor was too feeble to resist the extortions of the papal tax-gatherers. The proud Philip Augustus of France had been compelled by the Pope to put away the wife he loved and reinstate a divorced and discarded queen. There was scarcely a king or prince in Christendom who had not bowed before the threats of Rome. Frederick alone had resisted to the end, had survived the most furious assaults of Gregory and Innocent, had defied the sentence of deposition, and had worn his crowns with scarcely diminished power until the day of his death. Thus around his name there had gathered a glamour of strangeness and splendour, of genius soaring to perilous questionings of eternal truths, of unbreakable resolution, and of unconquerable pride. To his ardent supporters he had become the new Messiah, to his frenzied enemies the Antichrist. To those who stood outside the immediate fury of the strife, he was a being beyond the common range of human experience and comprehension. He was the dominating spirit of his age, the supreme center of interest and wonder, stupor mundi et immutator mirabilis. The historian Freeman has called him the most gifted of the sons of men, by nature the more than peer of Alexander, of Constantine, and of Charles, in mere genius, in mere accomplishments, the greatest prince who ever wore a crown. So rare an eulogy needs something more than a distinguished source to render it acceptable, but it will bear the scrutiny of skepticism passively well. Certain it is that in his tremendous intellect, in his cultured and inquiring mind, in his broad spirit of toleration, he towered far above his contemporaries, that his system of jurisprudence, his educational and economic regulations, 
betrayed a singularly enlightened conception of the arts of government. If the more cautious among us may hesitate to endorse the eulogy of Freeman with enthusiasm and conviction, we can at any rate follow him so far as this. We can say, nay, we must admit, that in genius Frederick has had no superior among the princes of the world, and that in the potentialities of greatness as a ruler he excelled many who have earned the title of great. That title would assuredly have been his, had not the enmity of the papacy prevented him from exercising those potentialities. Frederick belongs to no age, continues the same writer. Intellectually he is above his own age, above every age. Morally it can hardly be denied that he was below his age, but in nothing was he of his age. If we may accept Freeman's praise of Frederick with some diffidence, we can reject his condemnation with confidence. The vices of the Hohenstaufen emperor stand out in dark relief against the general enlightenment of his character. His duplicity, cruelty, and licentiousness were lamentable enough, but they do not place him morally below his age, for his faults were essentially the faults of his age and of his country. It was inevitable that Frederick, surrounded from his childhood by intrigue and hostile ambitions, should absorb within himself some of the craft and dissimulation with which he was thus familiarized. He was never the complete Machiavellian, but he was ready enough to employ guile and subterfuge when it seemed profitable. Pretend some business, he writes to one of his captains, whom he has ordered to obtain possession of a strong castle, and warily call the castle unto you. Seize on him if you can, and keep him till he cause the castle to be surrendered to you. This is a fair example of his duplicity, and does not argue in him a high conception of public honor. But it is far removed from dark and damnable treachery, and it can be said in partial extenuation of such methods that no ruler ever prospered in medieval Italy who disdained the wisdom of the serpent. We need only glance through the pages of any chronicler of Frederick's time to see that in his cruelty he certainly did not exceed the guilt of his contemporaries. We can read, for instance, in Salambene, of the fate of Alberic de Romano, who with his wife and family fell into the hands of his enemies in the year 1260. His six sons, some of them mere children, were hewn into pieces before his eyes and their bleeding limbs thrust into his face. His wife and daughters were stripped from the waist downwards, were paraded through the streets, and finally burnt at the stake. After he had witnessed their dying agonies, his own flesh was torn with red-hot pincers and his tortured body dragged to death at the tail of a horse. Frederick never descended to such barbarity as this. Nor can he be condemned as below his age when that age had witnessed the atrocities of the Albigensian crusade perpetrated with the sanction of the papacy, hideously sanctified by the pretext of religious zeal. If in his last years, goaded into frequent fits of sinister fury by his implacable enemies, rendered vindictive by treacherous attempts upon his life, Frederick became indiscriminate in his vengeance, his cruelty at any rate was never a lust. He was no Echelino de Romano, to gloat over the sufferings of his victims. It was rather an excessive form of severity. We can understand that in an age when such crimes as forgery and theft were punished by execution, 
a painless death seemed an utterly inadequate penalty for traitors. His cruelty was certainly not greater either in quantity or quality than that of his enemies, and on occasions he showed a generous clemency to his defeated foes. In the matter of sexual morality, the greatest minds have rarely consented to be bound by the code which is accepted by their fellow men. Frederick was no exception to this rule. Bound by no rigid system of religious belief, he was a law unto himself, entirely contemptuous of the conventions of his inferiors, and all men in his sight were the inferior of Caesar. He made no effort to hide from the world the license which that self-made law permitted him to enjoy. Yet in this vice, as in others, he was not below the standard of his age. The church itself, which we might expect to represent the highest morality of the time, was besmirched with lewdness from the highest to the lowest of its grades. If the popes themselves, either through virtue or old age, had renounced the lusts of the flesh, the papal court was notorious throughout Europe and polluted every city in which it sojourned. We found three or four houses of ill fame when we came hither, said the Cardinal Hugh of St. Cher, when the court was leaving Lyon to return to Italy after Frederick's death, and now, at our departure, we leave the whole city one continuous brothel. Another cardinal, the warlike Gregory of Montelengo, was reputed to have as many lemans as the emperor himself. The vow of chastity was openly violated by the parish priests, and the abuse of the confessional was widely prevalent. It is significant enough that in the many conditions of peace which were at one time or another demanded from Frederick by the papacy, he was never commanded to put away his concubines. His supposed intercourse with infidel women formed one of the charges set forth against him at the Council of Lyon, but his sins with Christian women were ignored. The Church knew too well that in this matter she could not cast the first stone. End of section 34